0: Today on the show, I talk to Dr Oliver Harrison. He's an advisor to the WHO, CEO of Coa Health, architect of the Abu Dhabi Public Health Strategy, and plenty more besides. We talk about digital health and HR leaders' place in getting it right in the future. This is someone with a great deal of experience in the field of telemedicine, and post-pandemic, his role is even more important than it was. So another good Unleashcast interview, sit back and enjoy. difficult to know where to start the amount of things you do and the work history that you have. Uh, but a lot of your work revolves around digital healthcare. So I think let's start here. Um, tell us a bit about what digital healthcare is or how it can help people.
1: Well, John pleasure to be here. So, um, I qualified as a medical doctor back in the late nineties and, uh, worked for six years total in the NHS in different roles. Um, and I was just aware, really, particularly in mental health care where I was working, that um, there were two big problems. Firstly, we had nothing like the number of doctors, therapists, nurses to go around, which meant that barriers to access were uh, um, too high. Um, it would take six months, 12 months for people to come and see us as a specialist team. Um, and by the time their GP made the referral, they were already in significant distress, right? So waiting another six months or 12 months is kind of not okay. But the second thing is that because of that barrier to access, we were seeing people months or years too late. And if you imagine somebody has a bad life experience, maybe a relationship breakup or lose their job, and that starts a snowball rolling down the mountain, and then they develop clinical symptoms, not sleeping right, they're feeling anxious, and then they get a clinical diagnosis. My question was, well, why couldn't we start at the beginning and um, a stitch in time? Um so became very interested in digital technology, really, um, to solve both that access challenge, reducing our dependency on expensive and scarce human clinicians, but also being able to intervene upstream in people's everyday lives before those small problems become big problems. Um, and really, over the past sort of 20 years plus, digital health has reached a, a new stage of maturity. I would say that the COVID pandemic and the need for social isolation has really delivered 20 years of progress in two years in terms of the adoption of digital tech, um, even simple things like using Zoom calls for a typical consultation, but also the measurement at home of certain um, uh, physiological measurements, um, and also the use of digital therapeutics as well to help to manage people. So I think we're seeing a world that is um, maturing quickly when it comes to digital tech.
0: That's partially answered my next question. I was about to ask for some kind of examples about how this, you know, what what digital tech you were talking about, but you've kind of done it. Is there anything else that springs to mind when you're- when so I'll you're... give
1: you a couple of specific examples. If you imagine somebody who's living with diabetes um, who um, has a an insulin pump that is measuring real time the level of glucose, sugar in their blood, and then delivering just the right dose of insulin to be able to normalise that glucose level, The data that's generated from those devices uh, can be shared, obviously, back with the patient. They can tweak their dosing and make sure that it's on track. But it can also be uploaded either on a memory stick or live to uh, a a diabetes nurse who's supervising that patient. And that can become important for life-threatening hypoglycemia where the blood sugar goes too low or diabetic ketoacidosis when the blood sugar gets too high. So that idea of um, uh, an implantable or kind of wearable device, which is able to share potentially life-saving information real time. That's sort of one example of that. And a second example is the use um, in mental health care of um, digital therapy, digital therapeutics. So I think when most people think about mental health care, they think about speaking to a, a human, a person, um, but we simply don't have enough clinicians to go around. So the waiting times can be very long. And actually for some people, It can be a real barrier to go speak to another person about their feelings and just the very practical thing of having to take an afternoon off work and drive across town find a parking space, kind of go into your therapy session for 12 weeks in a row, right? If you've got children at home or you've got a busy job, it can be really hard to fit that in. Um, But we've been able to develop, I mean, we, humanity has developed technology which allows that therapy experience to be made available to people to use at their convenience, using their smartphone or using their laptop. And that's just a real breakthrough, again, in terms of access. And all you really need to believe is that the quality of that is just as good as face-to-face therapy, and it's really a revolution. Um, And there are lots of clinical trials um, from Cover Health and from others that show that actually the quality can be as good, if not better, than face-to-face treatment.
0: Sticking with the mental health crisis, I think, it's not exactly that COVID-19 is out of the news, um, but there are other global issues sharing the news cycle with it now. And it may be to the back of some people's mind. But it's certainly very responsible for a decline in mental health in terms of the way people have restructured their lives. A lot of people have done it for the better, but some people not, uh, unfortunately, not so much. Um, To tie it into business, what would you say to HR leaders who? Well, first of all, let's talk about the importance of preventative care. And Do you have anything to say to HR leaders which may not see this as the right course of action in terms of preserving good mental health within a workplace?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the statistics are are pretty chilling. Um, So NHS statistics, Office of National Statistics numbers show that um, uh, in the UK, about 30% of the adult population, 30%, that's one in three, right, have symptoms that require clinical treatment for depression, anxiety, but also PTSD OCD, alcohol issues, drug issues, etc. And that's really just the tip of the iceberg. We've then got almost everyone, 85% of the population are experiencing mental health symptoms of some kinds that interfere with their ability to function at work, at home, in social situations, and so on. Um, And what we've seen in previous pandemics is there's two spikes, right? The first one is when people are actually socially isolated and they've had to change their lives, and there's a whole series of shocks and, and stresses that come from that is the social isolation and loneliness the disruption to everyday routine um for couples and families being in a small home together under each other's feet and um, missing social contact with family and friends and and even at work but also i think there's just a profound sense of disruption in society right we're very used to the idea that in a western country if there's a big problem if you get our best scientists best politicians and best thinkers, businesses kind of working on it, in a week or two or a couple of months at worst, it's kind of solved, right? And then you find yourself stuck in a second year of pandemic and all of a sudden the world feels a little bit less safe overall than it has done before. So all of those have really combined to make this a huge issue. And look, we're seeing very, very high rates of of turn of turnover of staff and that relates to the second peak. I mentioned there were two peaks. The second peak is when people get back to normal and try to get back on a bus or back on the tube. And after two and a half years of being conditioned around social isolation, being on a busy tube train or a busy bus, even seeing your workplace colleagues, is kind of, it's an intense experience, right? And that really precipitates um, a, a lot of anxiety symptoms or even depression, burnout symptoms um, amongst people who are trying to get back to normal. So... Um, if, if you, as an HR director, don't recognize that the statistics are affecting your population, you will see sky-high rates of unwanted turnover of staff. Uh, you will see um, difficulty in recruiting new talent, because a lot of people are looking for mental well-being to be t- taken seriously in the workplace, um, particularly younger people, so Gen Z and millennials. But you'll also see what's called presenteeism, where people are showing up physically to the office. They're kind of there in body, but they're not there in spirit or in mind. And if you're a retailer, that means the people working checkouts and stacking shelves are not representing your brand the way you want them to. Um, if you're working in an office or a call center, the productivity levels are not where you'd want them to be. And overall, this is a huge breaking effect on business performance. Now, a lot of companies kind of lent into this problem during COVID. Um, uh, so sort of 80% invested in some form of training or a digital asset to improve mental well-being in the workplace. But a lot of them found themselves a bit disappointed by the impact of that because it's important to have a, a clear strategy and to, to cover all the bases. And to go back to the other part of your question, the first thing you need to do in the workplace is stop harming people. So um, any sense of bias, any sense of bullying, expectations that, that people will work weekends and evenings, not take their vacation. Um, these are toxic and these will cause mental health problems. And you'll see that in the numbers of turnover, burnouts. And presenteeism, but then there's a whole set of tools that you can put in place around positive factors to go from bad to good, with the hygiene factors managed, and then good to great, and then become a real sort of mental well-being workplace. And then you really begin to unlock the human potential, the creativity, the spirit, the productivity of the people that are working on your team. And that's it's got to be good for HR. It's kind of the HR job, right?
0: Yeah, agreed. I mean, in so many ways. HR is more important than ever, but they also have, uh, these teams have a lot on their plates, because everyone, literally everyone has has been through this incredible last two to three years. I can't finish without uh, talking about your work with the WHO, I think. So you and and also, you, I believe you set up a public health strategy for Abu Dhabi as well. Yeah, I mean, well, let's talk about the WHO. This is an organisation which unfairly, maybe five years ago, not many people paid too much attention to, but it's really <laughs> come to the fore for kind of the, the best, but also worst reason. Do you see this organisation kind of ta- changing its communication strategy, or the way it engages with the public? Because of obviously now it's very much uh, front and centre of people's minds for the obvious reasons.
1: Yeah, I think the WHO is a force for good in the world. Um, it's in need of feeding and Um So very interesting um, uh, structure. It was set up as part of a whole series of um, uh, international multinational structures after the Second World War and what's called the Bretton Woods meetings, where the world decided to create the United Nations, um, uh, uh, the World Bank, um, uh, um, uh, the ITU, which manages radio frequencies and satellite orbits and and the WHO, right? And the labor organization and and, and others. And it was launched, I think, with a lot of optimism that the world would become a better place in the second half of the 20th century. There are some very emblematic features of the WHO. Its definition of health is not merely the absence of disease or infirmity, but the presence of full physical, social and spiritual well-being. It's a great North Star for anyone working in healthcare. But it's really been underfunded. Um, There have been some political reasons for that over the years. Um, and, And I think sort of latterly... It's, it's really become best known for managing epidemics. Um, it's in Hollywood movies. The WHO person swings in with their kind of biological warfare suit and so- sorts out the world. Um, but actually, a lot of the work, WHO's work is on um, the non-communicable diseases like diabetes, heart disease, cancer, stroke, and so on, um, accidents in the workplace, and, and so on, um, and mental health. And when you look at the statistics, and these are WHO statistics, the leading cause of disability around the world is mental health, right? And it gets less than 2% of the budgets, um, uh, healthcare budgets, um, in terms of direct spend around the world. That's why we don't have enough clinicians to go around and we have these barriers to access. So WHO kind of force for good. It's been a pleasure to work there um, as a doctor and a bit of a healthcare geek. It was a spiritual experience going to the WHO building in Geneva. It's got a cathedral of health but I think it needs a bit of love feeding and watering. So um, uh, hopefully it'll get a bit more funding in the wake of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, fascinating to hear, thank you so much.
1: I have a coming plan that one day we will have a Royal College of Digital Health alongside the Royal College of Medicine, Surgery and so on. Uh, I think that would be a good way for us to advance the course, but uh, great to meet you and thanks for your time.